book of Isaiah, the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. Then we will turn to our sermon text in Matthew 7. Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 5. Here now the reading of God's holy word is inspired, infallible, and inerrant, perfect to accomplish all of God's purposes. He gives it to us for our good. So give your attention to its reading. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Amen. And then if you would go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, again, verses 1 through 5. Here, once again, the reading of God's holy word. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow in prayer once more. Father, we come before your word humbled. Give us hearts that, as Isaiah says, hearts that would tremble at your word. Oh, Father, we pray for those who are afflicted, who have troubles of soul, who have doubt, who have hurt, who are struggling. Oh, Father, come alongside them, comfort them. We thank you that Jesus is meek and lowly, that you are a God who has 
Heaven is your throne, the earth is your footstool, yet you dwell with the humble and the contrite. Come alongside and and comfort the afflicted. Oh, Father, we pray that you would also afflict the comfortable, those who think they have no need of redemption, salvation. Father, convict them of the need for humble repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Speak through your word. There are so many needs in this room known only to you. Come in your power. Minister to those needs for your glory. Be with your servant also as he declares your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, for many years now, we've gotten used to saying it, that our culture is is one of non-judgmentalism. And one of the cardinal virtues of our world is, is permissiveness, at least on the surface. This really doesn't follow through if you follow out the logic and, and what actually happens. It's not like everything is permissible now. There, there still are certain things that we would think of as uh, typical sins that, that are still condemned widely. And uh, we can bring examples to our minds. But uh, the, the way in which this has manifested itself in our culture is that permissiveness really is a, a reversal of traditional values. And much of what used to be celebrated is now condemned. And much of what used to be condemned is now celebrated. We're living in the midst of a, of a great moral revolution. We've seen it come uh, and, and coming for many years now, and we've seen it flower in many ways in the last 10 years or so. So on the surface, permissiveness is a cardinal virtue, even though the logic is not really consistent. But that's what somebody who follows the spirit of the age would say. I I don't judge. And oftentimes they would look at uh, traditional church folks and say, well, you're, you're judgmental people. And you don't really follow the words of Jesus when he says, judge not that, that you be not judged. Are we as Christians to never make any moral judgments? Are we, are we not to make distinctions and, and, and to discriminate in certain ways according to God's word? Are we not to stand upon the convictions that we have about God's word? Well, that's certainly not what, what Jesus is calling us to here, but we need to, to weigh what Jesus is saying and understand it, understand that he's giving us clear instruction for our lives. In uh, the United Kingdom, in the first part of the 20th century, particularly in the 1930s, uh, Winston Churchill, who would later become the, the, the greatest statesman, hero statesman of the, the 20th century, was largely derided and despised. In, uh, in England and throughout the United Kingdom because he was seen as too rigid, too, too convictional, somebody who was unwilling to compromise, and so he was largely despised. Someone like Neville Chamberlain rose to, to prominence and, and to power, but in the 1940s, when a, a true reality of evil was staring them in the face, it was the man of conviction, it was the man of, of courage, it was the man who was rigid and unwilling to compromise who rose uh, to power and notoriety and was largely loved and celebrated and still is to this day. The point of what I'm saying is when we see the truth of the realities of this world, when we see the, the way the world is, we have no choice but to be people of moral courage and conviction. But how? How are we to be people of moral courage and conviction, standing upon the truth of God's word, without transgressing this commandment that Jesus gives to us? Judge not that you be not judged. We have to be people of courage and conviction, 
who live under the great governing truth that God is the king of all creation. When we stand upon conviction and courage, we are not the king of creation. We are not ultimately in charge. And we live with the fundamental conviction that one day all will give an accounting to him, including ourselves. And so we we never remove ourselves from the conviction of that truth. God is king. God is judge. So we we live with, as people of truth and conviction, uh, seeking to testify to the truth, to point others to the reality that one day God will judge the earth. And we also live doing all that we can to help others make themselves ready for that day, always doing so humbly and in light of God's lordship. So let's consider these things together as we consider these words in Matthew 7. First, judging with the judge watching. Judging with the judge watching. Well, we just finished looking at Matthew chapter 6, which has basically reminded us that you always live before the face of God. You always live with the judge watching. He sees all. He knows all, even to the depths of our hearts. And, and that brings to us or confronts us with the, the, the reality that we are to live with everything pointed, oriented towards that truth. Uh, we, John Newton, I shared this quote with us a, a few weeks ago, and, and basically says this, Oh, that you might set God always before you, that he might be the one for whom and to whom you live. God sees all and he knows all. Matthew chapter 6 has, has given us that instruction, and Matthew 7 continues on that very thing. God sees all. He is the judge. And thus we think about this command of Jesus in light of all of those things. Jesus is reinforcing the truth that we live before the Father's watchful eye. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Half of our troubles are due to the fact that we live on the assumption that this is the only life in the only world. In other words, the only thing to live for. He says, of course we know that is not true, but there is a great difference between knowing a thing and really being governed and guided by that knowledge in our ordinary life and outlook. Are you governed? Are you guided by the truth that this life is not all that there is? He goes on to say this, the thing that really differentiates God's people from all others is that they have always been people who walk in the consciousness of their eternal destiny. That is what We are to live like. That is how we are to live as people who honestly, truly live out that this life is not all that there is. So Jesus' command here is not a command to never make moral judgments. It's not a command to never have moral courage, but rather to understand that we never can can ascend to the judgment seat that belongs only to God. That's what Jesus is telling us and and commanding us not to do. Don't believe yourself to be able to ascend to God's judgment seat. It belongs to him and to him alone. Why is that? Why is it true that God alone is the judge? Well, first this, God alone judges the thoughts and the intentions and the hearts of men. Who can see into the true depth of things? Who knows the true nature of things from beginning to end, not only right from wrong, but how things really are in every moment, in every passing of time, every decision? God knows it all. 
Thus, he alone is qualified to be the judge. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Why, why do trials often take so long? It's serious criminal trials because we're, we're, we're trying to, to, to gather evidence. We're trying to get as much of a view of hopefully the truth of a situation as possible so that we can make a reasonable judgment and so that, that we can do things beyond a reasonable doubt. God knows the true nature of things. Thus, he is qualified to always be the great and final and ultimate judge. Jeremiah 32, great and mighty God, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Because he knows all, he judges all, and he judges all rightly. With that fundamental conviction then that God knows all thus he is qualified to be judge it causes us to step back and to say that whatever judgments whatever distinctions whatever uh, value judgments we make in this world they are never going to be with the all-seeing eye of God thus we adopt a posture as God's people of being gracious of being understanding of being patient of being long-suffering in all of the judgments that we make Romans 14 gets at this very idea. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So the, the, the posture that we adopt is one of, of humility and understanding that that Since God alone is qualified to be the ultimate judge, that changes the way that we make our judgments. Secondly, we also come up to the fact, and here is where we get to the the glorious truth of the gospel, we also adopt a posture as God's people in Jesus Christ, we adopt a posture of graciousness and humility because God himself has been gracious with us. And that's the good news of what we know in, in Jesus Christ. Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you? You delight to show mercy. The the, the pleasure of God is seen and manifested in his gospel forgiveness. If we could grasp that, if we can just grasp that a little bit more as we make our spiritual journey through this world and just ask that the Lord would give us a, a greater sense of the wonder of forgiveness. Now, in order to do that, what do you need? You need to understand how deep an offense sin is to the majesty of God. See, we cannot ever fully rightly estimate that, and so we fall short in our estimation of grace. If we would know how much sin is an offense to the majesty of God, our love and our wonder of the gospel would increase, it would grow. Isaiah 33 says this wonderful verse that encapsulates Many different things that the Lord is for us. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And then this, he will save us. You can search the world. You'll never find another message where the judge, the lawgiver, the king, are the one to whom we come, is the one to whom we come in confidence and comfort, knowing that he is the one who saves us. We are called to be gracious with others because God has been gracious with us. 
God alone, not only does he know all things, he sees to the truth of the things, not only is he a gracious God, but he alone, here's another way in which we cannot judge, we cannot follow God's judgment in this way, he alone is the one who speaks eternal judgments that cannot be reversed. He makes the final and ultimate decision. And this really gets at the spirit, I believe, of what Jesus is commanding us not to do. When we adopt a judgmental spirit, what is it that we are doing? We are writing people off. And it is as if we are saying in our heart, that person may as well be condemned to hell. They have no hope. And that is exactly what we cannot do when Jesus tells us, judge not. Back to Lloyd-Jones, he says this, This spirit really manifests itself in the tendency to pronounce final judgment upon people as such. This means that it is not a judgment so much on what they do or believe or say as upon the persons themselves. It is a final judgment upon the individual, and what makes it so terrible is that at that point, it is adopting to itself something that belongs to God. That great and awesome and final day. God will give the final word on souls, on persons, and that word is irreversible. Think of the most serious judgments that we could have in this world. As as Christian people, as people of God, the two most serious judgments that could be rendered upon someone, uh, capital punishment and excommunication. A a terrible crime in the civil realm, uh, executed by, with a capital punishment, taking the life of someone rooted in Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, or excommunication according to the judgment of the church. Someone is to be put outside the fellowship of the church because they yet remain unrepentant and have shown themselves to be so. The two most serious judgments. Now, uh, what are the things that typically would be said when something like that happens? A sentence is pronounced that a capital punishment is, is to be rendered upon someone. And what would be a typical thing that the judge might say? He might say, may God have mercy upon your soul. You see, even in that moment, there's this recognition that there can be a reversal of ultimate things. Someone's life being put to an end on this earth might not necessarily be the final word on the destiny of their soul. And oftentimes we give, we give people time to get their spiritual affairs in order in such cases. What about the church? Why does the church put someone outside fellowship? Well, it is because they are hoping that that situation will bring someone back to repentance, to return to the Lord, that they may be restored. You see, it isn't a final pronouncement upon the state of someone's soul. It is a call to repentance and a hope for restoration. So when we see this command from Jesus, the heart of it is that we never ascend ourselves to the throne of God to make that pronouncement upon someone as if it were the final day of judgment, which is exactly what we do when we adopt that critical spirit. When we write someone off, We say they may as well be condemned for eternity. So we are to make judgments and calculations and distinctions. But the manner in which we do them is extremely important. So I'm going to read something from Matthew Henry that I think summarizes beautifully how we can live as people of truth and conviction and not transgress this commandment of God. He says this, We must not judge rashly nor pass such a judgment upon our brother as has no ground, but is only the product of our own jealousy 
and ill nature. Judging someone out of jealousy, judging someone rashly, quickly, rushing. We must not make the worst of people. How badly we need to hear that. Imputing the worst motives to someone. Making the worst out of all that they do. Kind of summing up all of their sins and faults and flaws and having that be your, your chief evidence. We must not judge uncharitably or unmercifully, nor with a spirit of revenge, nor with a desire to do mischief. We must not judge a man's state by a single act, nor of what he is in himself by what he is to us, because in our own cause we are apt to be partial. Isn't that true? Partial and often in a way tilted towards ourselves. We must not judge the hearts of others, nor their intentions, for it is God's prerogative to try the heart, and we must not step into his throne. We are to counsel people. We are to help them. But do not judge them, Matthew Henry says. See, we bear witness to the, the truth of judgment day as people of, of truth and conviction, and we are to seek to help others become ready for that day. The warning that Jesus gives is that we can expect to be judged with the strictness that we apply to others. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. The Sermon on the Mount is, is given to believers, but the context of that chapter is the, the danger, the possibility of false professors. A tree and its fruit. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, I will know or will enter the kingdom of heaven. The house that's built on the sand. So the context of this chapter is often false professing. To be a believer is to see and to understand and to know that though in and of yourself you were headed for condemnation, Though you completely deserve to be condemned for eternity, you receive the gift of eternal life. You receive the exact opposite of condemnation in Christ. To be a Christian is to live with the fundamental knowledge and conviction that the holy and righteous eternal God moved heaven and earth to save you, that He sent His Son to be the sacrifice for sin, that he gave his son to live a righteous life that we might stand before him. It's to live with the fundamental conviction that though you deserve hell, you get heaven. And here's the question. The greatest gift that you have ever received in your, in your life is that gift that you deserve hell and you get heaven. The fundamental truth about who you are. There is nothing more basic to who you are as a Christian, then you deserve hell and you get heaven. Here's the question. Is a heart that grasps that and embraces that, is that a heart that goes around looking to condemn people, looking to arrogate itself to the judgment seat of God, a heart that is seemingly eager to send others to condemnation? Is, is that a heart that is living in light of that fundamental conviction of who I am. I deserve hell and I get heaven in Jesus Christ. No, of course not. And that is the warning, the danger of what Jesus is saying to us. And so this is the question we ask ourselves this morning, brothers and sisters. Am I more wrathful than God? Who is a God like you? You delight to show mercy. The holy and righteous and eternal God moved heaven and earth to save his people. 
You, living in light of that truth, are you more wrathful than God? Are you more eager to send people to condemnation than God himself? If you are, then you are in a dangerous place. Do you impute the worst motives to others? Do you always judge uncharitably? Do you make the worst of people? Do you hold on to bitterness? Do you refuse to forgive someone who seeks reconciliation to you, with you? These are signs of a heart that is unchanged. The church is to be a community of grace founded upon the realities of what God has done for us in Christ. We are to adopt then a spirit of humility. So the contrast is between hypocrisy and humility. A hypocrite in this instance is one who finds faults in others while overlooking his own sins. And it is that spirit that will always give rise to what Jesus condemns here. Someone who is judgmental and critical and someone seeking to ascend to God's seat of judgment. Jesus condemns this posture. Why? We must always see our own sins first. So never forget, never forget that the Apostle Paul called himself the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul. I think most of us, if we think about ourselves honestly, probably understand that he had a deeper, richer fellowship with God than, than most people ever have had this side of heaven. And of course, what, what we see uh, coming forth from this is that someone who has an unhealthy fellowship with their Lord, someone who is not walking in step with the Spirit, as the, as the book of Romans would say, is someone who cannot usher other people into the presence of the Lord as well, cannot facilitate a greater spiritual health if they themselves are spiritually unhealthy, whether because they are unsaved, their heart is unchanged, or their heart has grown grown cold to the realities of God's grace. So it is only those who acknowledge their own sinfulness that stand in a position ready to be a help to others. Calvin says, even if we were carefully to examine just one minute of our lives, we would find ourselves worthy of eternal death. Indeed, each one of us would discover ourselves to be sinners, not in just one area, but a hundred thousand, not due to some one fault, but to countless millions. This doesn't mean that we are ever going to be caught in a loop where we're only looking at the depth of our own sin. But once we see the depth of our own sin, we adopt a posture of humility and thankfulness of grace, and then our heart turns outward so that we go from condemnation to compassion, from ridicule to restoration. Eye surgery is a a complex thing. And what would make a good surgeon? Clear eyes, gentle precise hands. Jesus uses a ridiculous image and then a very realistic image. If you've ever had a speck in your eye, this would be like a speck of sawdust. If you've ever had something like that caught in your eye, you know that it's not a pleasant experience. In fact, not only is it very painful, for, for many people it becomes debilitating, just a tiny little speck in your eye. And so Jesus is not saying that this is something that you can almost disregard. It's something that requires great attention and earnest attention even. But what do you need first? Clear eyes. So he uses the ridiculous image, the plank, the log in the eye, in order to illustrate the reality of what your sin ought to look like to you. Why? Because you are the only one who can examine your own heart. 
And so in the community of grace, and, and, and recognize that the, the fundamental teaching here is about the covenant community, it is the, the speck in your brother's eye. It is the judgment that you render upon your brother. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, we primarily think about this passage as it relates to one another, the community of grace. But as we all adopt that posture of humility, we have the clear eyes and the gentle hands to be able to perform this kind of a thing, from ridicule to restoration, from condemnation to compassion. You will see clearly, Jesus says, in order to what? In order to take the speck out of his eye. Galatians 6, verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, now think about that. If we were to live never making judgments, never, never standing upon the truth of conviction, we would never come to the conclusion that anyone is caught in a transgression. We are to be people of truth and conviction and moral courage. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We begin from that grace-filled humility. You deserved hell, and in Jesus Christ, you get heaven. And from that grace-filled humility, uh, you go from criticism and condemnation to compassion, from ridicule to a desire for restoration, to see your brothers and sisters when they are caught in a transgression, in a sin that they might be restored to right fellowship unto God. But it happens for those who have clear eyes and gentle hands, those who are filled with a thankfulness for what God has done for them. So how do we testify to the truth of the judgment day? With humility, not hypocrisy with a gospel humility in awe of the judge's mercy. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Be a grace-filled community. How do we help others get ready for that day? With compassion, not condemnation. With a desire for restoration, not ridicule. With the gentleness of an eye surgeon, glad that the judge gives us something to do while we wait for his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the chance to look into your word and to declare our awe and wonder at the gospel of grace. We give you all thanks and praise and adoration as we consider these things and ask that the truth of these words would flow into our hearts and into our lives, all for the sake of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.